sinners lost and hopeless Jesus blood can make you free for he saved the worst among you when he saved a wretch like me to the faint he giveth power through the mountains makes a way findeth water in the desert turns the night to golden day and i know yes i know yes i know yes i know jesus blood can make the vilest sinner clean and i know yes i know Yes, I know. Yes, I know. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. In temptation, he is near thee. Holds the powers of hell at bay. Guides you to the path of safety. Gives you grace for every keep thee while the ages rolls throughout eternity though earth hinders and hell rages all must work for good to thee and i know yes i know yes i know blood can make the vilest sinner clean and i know yes i know yes i know yes i know jesus blood can make the vilest sinner clean and i know yes i know yes i know yes i know jesus blood can make the vilest sinner clean and i know yes i know Yes, I know. Yes, I know. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. That's a good song, too. I like that one, too. That moves along nice, too. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles. Now, I just want you to turn to the book of Daniel. Be ready to go there in Daniel. We're going to kind of do a little bit of a, just a very brief um, summary, and then we're going to jump into some new material. Um, I think we're ready to go. Can we get that back up as well, gentlemen? That'd be good if you can. And um, we'll get that going. There it is, the Gentiles. We've been dealing with the Gentiles now as of last week, and it's in our... Uh, as we put it, our Bible truth series here that I've been doing for quite a while now. But uh, up until Abraham, everybody was a Gentile. And then, of course, we know that Abraham was chosen by God to be the ancestor of the Jewish people. And so he becomes the first Hebrew. But uh, before that, everybody was a Gentile. And so we noted that along the way. And uh, we just uh, learned also along the way that uh, scripture teaches us that the Gentiles would dominate and rule the world from basically uh, the time of Israel as they went into captivity under Babylonian captivity, 606 B.C., right up until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And that's kind of 
some of the things we were looking at, the times of the Gentiles. And again, it says, it says, uh, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Again, from Babylonian captivity, 606 B.C., right on through till Revelation, the revelation of Christ there in chapter 19. And then we uh, began to note this element of the fullness of the Gentiles. We said there is a distinct difference between the two. And again, Romans eleven twenty five. For I would not, brethren, uh, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And again, that took place between Pentecost and the rapture. So we see the times of the Gentiles starting in 606 B.C., going right up until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the throne of David. Then we have the fullness of the Gentiles, which is something different, and we see that being, of course, from Pentecost right on through till the rapture of the church. So uh, the Holy Spirit seeking out the bride of Christ, and when that bride is complete and the last soul is saved, then all of a sudden the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. So we see that there's the distinction between the two, and they can't be mixed. You can't mix them up, okay? You got to be careful you don't mess those up because they sound kind of similar. Times of the Gentiles, fullness of the Gentiles, but they are very distinct and very different. And so then we kind of started moving along, and uh, we noted some things. We uh, realized here that that we're going to see this, what we would call a colossus or this huge um, statue, if you will, that Nebuchadnezzar dreams about. And of course, we talked about how he looked to his uh, magicians and astrologers and other spiritual leaders, so to speak, and he said, hey, let me know what the interpretation of my dream was. And they said, well, what's your dream? And he, they, he said, I'm not telling you. I, I, I don't know. You guys tell me, remember? And they said, that's not, that's not the way it works. Okay, King, you, you got to remember that you're supposed to tell us the dream, and then we tell you the interpretation. And he says, wait a second. If I tell you the dream, then you could pretty much tell me anything you want. Uh, no, I don't think so. So matter of fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'll tell you what, if you can't tell me what I dreamed and the interpretation of it, I'll just kill all of you. That's exactly what he proclaimed. Well, then all of a sudden, Daniel gets word of that, we know, and he and his, his three companions... Uh, they decide that they're going to get to praying and ask God to open up the eyes of Daniel so that he can interpret the dream. And sure enough, Daniel does do just that. Now turn over to Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. We're over there in Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. And uh, we're going to go ahead and <clears throat> we're going to look at, um, at this particular passage. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. And so we're going to see the interpretation. And here it is. And, and then why we're going to run through this again is because we're going to try to com complete this particular section today. Now notice it says in verse 31, here is the interpretation of the dream as given to Daniel by God. Thou, O king, verse 31, sawest and behold a great image. This great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee and the form thereof was terrible. Excuse me. And so he goes on to say, this image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet a part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that 
a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, and no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There's your dream, king. Hold on. Let me tell you a little bit more about it now. Verse 36. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowl of the heavens hath he given unto thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Verse 39, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise and whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of the potter's clay and part of iron the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings... Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to another to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever for as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron the brass the clay the silver and the gold the great God hath made known the, to the king what shall come to pass hereafter and the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. And so we noted along the way as we read through this passage, we noted this image. And again, as we, we see above us here, it, it says, we see that the head was made of gold, that the chest was of silver, the abdomen, so to speak, in the middle area there was brass. The iron or lower, to, lower, lower tor, torso was iron. And as we began to read through this, we began to recognize and understand that God not only told us, uh, uh, told, uh, revealed the image, but as we read through the book of Daniel, we have so many clues that point us into the exact nations that would ultimately rule, these Gentile nations that would rule. And we find that this particular uh, statue, if you will, or that image that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar actually saw represents the times of the Gentiles and the nations of the Gentiles that would rule. And we recognize there would be four nations or four kingdoms, basically, that would rule, only four that would rule. Between the time of 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar taking Israel into captivity, and the time that Jesus Christ himself returns to establish and set up his kingdom. We're not talking about the United States of America. They're not a world leader. We don't rule the world. We're talking about kingdoms that would literally rule the world. And what we found is there were four of them. That first kingdom, the gold head, was representative of Babylon. And again, we said that while interpreting the vision, of course, Daniel himself from God says, thou art this head of gold. It's Babylon. It's King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon there. The second was the Medo-Persian regime. 
And we noted that as well. And we see that in, in Belteshazzar when in the night his, that he was um, in, in Daniel chapter 5, verse 30 and 31. In that night, it says, was Belteshazzar king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom. We see here that, that we're going to see now that, 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 that God actually identifies these actual nations, these, these kingdoms. And, and so we see the first is Babylon, the second Medo-Persia, the third would be Greece, and then the fourth would be Rome, and we note that along the way. So as we look at these images, we see again gold, silver, brass, and iron. It's interesting as we look at that, that there's those different uh, materials actually kind of descend in value. They have a descending value. Gold's more valuable than silver. Silver's more valuable than brass and brass than iron. And of course, iron, I guess, than even clay itself. So we notice that there's a descending value here. Uh, finally, it ends in iron mixed with clay. And that's where it ends, in the feet of this particular colossus. And the combination of that is virtually worthlessness. It's, it's, it's worthless. It's useless. Clay and iron, that's not going to do a whole lot for you. That's not going to be very valuable at all. And so we see this descending value. It's also interesting, though, on the other hand, that the order of these materials increases in hardness. Okay? With the exception of the iron-clay mixture, they increase in hardness. Gold is... Uh, and then silver, then brass, then iron. They get harder and harder as you move along in time here. So what do we learn from that then? So on one hand, we've got this decline in value, but we have this increase in hardness, if you will. It seems that it appears that like the spiritual, the moral, or the cultural qualities of these empires continues to decline with each one. However, the military power, the political power of these particular uh, world powers seems to increase. And uh, that's important to recognize. We notice as Rome comes into power, Rome is extremely powerful. And boy, I tell you what, they literally, the, even according to the, 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 the different um, uh, visions that Daniel gets and, and, and so forth, that, that they literally crush and destroy. And we're going to see a few things about that later on, not so much tonight, but as we move ahead in our series. But there's some things about this Colossus, though. It, it forecasted the future. When Daniel begins to identify this, this uh, uh, image that the king had seen in his dream, and he begins to outline the details of it, he's talking about things that are future now. And he's talking prophetically. And he's letting the king know about what's going to take place in the future. And a big part of that prophecy was fulfilled as we look back on it now. The majority of it has been completely fulfilled over the centuries. And the rise and fall of these particular world powers has been pretty much fulfilled to some degree or another. However, when you look at that, you see those legs there, those legs and, and, and those legs of iron and, and so forth. You, you see that the, the Roman Empire was divided then. At some point, it divided into two, and it did. But that wasn't until years later. That was after the death of Christ in about 364 A.D. that it actually divided. Constantine ruled over a unified Roman Empire. That was in 325. We understand that. But that unity proved to be somewhat of an illusion because it would only be 27 years after he died that the Emperor Valentinian I divided the empire into the western and eastern sections. And he went ahead and he put himself in power in the west, and he put his brother Valens in power in the east. 
And so eventually, it's interesting, so now the, the, the Roman uh, 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 Empire is divided here. But not only that, but we're going to see even that that division would affect religion. Because to this day, we still have, we have the Greek Orthodox Church. The Greek Orthodox Church was a split off of the Roman Catholic Church, basically, or the Roman Church. So you have, you have the um, uh, Church in the East now because of this division, because eventually the East and the West did not get along at all. They got some real problems politically, and so therefore they just went ahead and said, you know what, we want nothing to do with our church, we'll create our own church too. And so we have the differing churches, we have two different legs, if you will, of the Roman Empire now, and eventually what we're going to find is that as of yet, the division of the ten toes on the feet, it hasn't happened yet. It's still future. Again, we have to realize that there's been some breaks along the way. For instance, between uh, about 330 B.C. over till about 30 B.C., you have a time period there where uh, the, the, these world powers were, there wasn't one particular world power. Although we know that Alexander the Great in about 330 AD or BC uh, took over and conquered the world. We understand that. And Greece was in power, but that got all messed up after his death. And there wasn't just one specific world power between that time. And then now between in the church age, there's not been one particular world power now. Okay, so what happened? There's obviously been a break along the way. There was a break between 330 and 30 B.C., and now there's been this break now for quite a few years as we await the reviving of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is coming back. And, you know, we see all this stuff going on in Europe, and we start to ask ourselves, well, why is this happening? Why is that happening? I don't know when the rapture is going to take place. I don't know when Christ is going to return. But what I do know is that he intended for things like this to happen because ultimately there will be a one world government and there will be the Roman Empire revived again. And it's represented by those ten toes because there will be ten kings. And we're going to see in the next sections as we move forward that out of those ten kings will come forth the Antichrist. He'll take down three and he'll rise up. And we'll, we'll talk a little more about that in the future. But for right now, we're seeing that this particular times of the Gentiles is pictured in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And we see that it's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then ultimately Rome. And uh, again, it's outlined in the book of Daniel, and we see evidence of that. And we don't have time to go back and look at that like we did last week. Now, How does the times of the Gentiles end then? How does it end? Turn to Daniel chapter 2. You're there already, but look at verse 32. Chapter 2, verse 32. How does it end? Because it does end. And again, you know, you say, well, this is kind of weird. I thought there was supposed to be four world powers and only four. And there, there are. But again, there's those breaks that we've seen through history. We've seen that break of about, about 300 years right before Christ. Uh, came to the earth. We see now a number of hundreds of years now as we've looked back through the church age. But God's not done yet. A day is with the Lord is as a, th- a thousand years. Uh, see, a day is as a thousand years to the Lord. It's not a big deal to Him. And to us, sometimes we make a big deal of it, but to Him, it's not a big deal. Time means nothing to Him. Uh, he's eternal. One day, uh, it won't mean anything to us when we stop living in this temporal life and sphere in which we live. 
and we're in the eternal as well. But notice here in uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 32, this image, his head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thigh of brass, his legs of iron and his feet part iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and brake them in pieces. Then was the image upon Excuse me, then was the iron, the clay, the brass, and the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chafe of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, and no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Look at verse 45 now. It says, For as much as thou sawest, the stone was cut out of the mountain, that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. And that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Now again, what, what ultimately ends the times of the Gentiles? Well, it's this stone cut out of the mountain. That's what really ends it. So the Colossus... It, it struck, the Bible tells us, on the feet by this stone that's cut out of the mountain. So that, that stone, even as the picture shows, it demolishes this image in one blow. It's gone. It's, it's demolished. Now, when we think about that and we look at that, it's important to recognize the fact that that stone represents judgment then. It represents judgment. It does not represent grace. Because all of a sudden, all these world powers are, are being pictured here, and all of a sudden, this stone cut out of the mountain comes and just whacks it, and boom, it's demolished. And matter of fact, he calls it, it turns them into chafe, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute too. But some have thought somehow that Christianity would ultimately spread throughout the world and usher in the millennium. That's not true. See, the, the truth is, is that the church does it never once overcomes the, the world and ultimately brings in the millennium. We don't do that. That's not how it works. The stone is not a picture of Christianity that would systematically take ground over time. Instead, this is a very sudden, it's a very immediate thing, and it brings to an end immediately uh, these world powers. The stone then that strikes the Colossus, and this is the key, right? I believe has to be interpreted as Christ, who's called a stone in Scripture. Look in Matthew chapter 21, verse 44. Matthew 21, 44. How does the times of the Gentiles end? Well, it ends with the stone. <laughs> it's cut out of this mountain without hands. It ends with Christ. Notice what happens here in uh, Matthew 21. The Bible says, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now again, when we think about this stone, I think it's obvious that in context we're talking about Christ himself, and it says shall be broken. So whosoever shall fall on this stone or Christ shall be broken. It seems that we're dealing with kind of like uh, broken by repentance, broken by uh, conviction of sin and broken, but whomsoever it shall fall, it's going to grind to powder. You either fall upon Christ or, or he falls on you. <laughs> you, 
You don't win in the end, no matter what. You reject Christ, it's over. And in this case, we have these world powers, and he's going to come in the end, and uh, they're going to be totally and completely demolished and destroyed. Now, that's exactly what the prophet foretold. Notice what Daniel recorded again. We were back there. Let's go back to Daniel 2 again. Because that's exactly what he's saying happens. That it's a total annihilation. It's total destruction. And it's immediate. It's fast. Notice what he says here. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 2, verse 35. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken in pieces together. And notice, became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away with no place, but that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, again, when this stone falls on this image or this colossus or whatever you want to call it, it, it is in the days of the kings, he says here too. In the days of these kings. Now, when he's talking about those kings that he's talking about, he's not, just talk, he's not talking about so much Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately Alexander the Great and the Medo-Persians so much. He's talking primarily about those ten kings that will be there in the end. Because notice that the, the stone hits the ten toes. It hits the feet. And so what he's going to talk about, and then that's going to wreck and ruin everything. It's just going to destroy all of that. Now, notice... In Daniel 2, verse 43 again, because this is the context of it. He says, And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as the iron mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings, he's still talking, he's talking about this iron mixed with clay now. In these, he says, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, those ten toes, as we already touched on very briefly, represent the, and the, the mixture of iron and clay. They represent ten kings of the revived Roman Empire. And so what he's talking about is at some point that the Roman Empire will be revived. There'll be ten kings, so to speak, that will operate and function and they'll move this thing in the, that direction. Hold on, though. At some point, we're going to see that amongst, amidst those ten kings, three are going to go down, if you will, and someone's going to pop up, and it's going to be the Antichrist. And at the end of the tribulation period, we know that Christ is going to return, and when he does, he is going to smite that kingdom. And he is going to wreck and destroy it completely. And he is going to establish his kingdom. Again, all of that is still future. And again, he says he's going to turn into the chafe. I, I was looking at videos of how they do that. You know, they take, uh, say, this wheat, and they throw the wheat up in the air like this, and the wind blows across it, and they stand upwind, and it takes all the, the light stuff, the little stuff, and just kind of gets rid of it. You throw it up in the air, and it goes, whoosh, flies away. That's the chafe, or chaff. And you know, that stuff is worthless. You know what? He's going to turn the kingdoms of this world to worthlessness. They're going to be of no value anymore. He's going, to, he's going to just totally annihilate them. You know, 
All of that's still future, though. That's still future. And we won't be here when that happens. We'll be coming back with him, but we're not going to be on earth when those ten kings are, are when the Antichrist reveals himself. According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we will not be on the earth when he is revealed. I'm glad I won't be here, by the way. So these four kingdoms that are typified by this Colossus are literal kingdoms, though. And we already talked about who they were. And so it makes sense that the stone kingdom, then, is going to also be a literal kingdom. I mean, if, if it takes the place of literal kingdoms that are being destroyed, then guess what? It's going to be a literal kingdom as well. The stone kingdom is the millennial kingdom of Christ. That's what we're recognizing. That's what we see here. And um, that's when the times of the Gentiles will completely come to an end. And it'll come to an end at the revelation of Christ when he returns and he sets up his kingdom. And so that's what the image is really showing. And so Nebuchadnezzar all those years ago has this image and this, this dream. And he says, man, you guys, I want you to interpret it for me. They can't interpret it. Not only interpret it, I want you to tell me what the dream was. Daniel says, I got the dream and the interpretation, king. And here's what it is. You are the beginning of a long line of, of, of at least th- four, four nations, four not just nations, but four kingdoms that will rule the world between now and the time of the millennial reign of Christ. And we have already seen all four kingdoms come to pass, and one will be revived in the end times. It's interesting, and it will prove to be more interesting all along. I mean, when you take Israel's over in the Middle East, and you have Europe and all these nations over there, you're going to see that it's all going to come together. But I don't know how much of this we'll see. I don't know how quickly it all formulates. But we know one thing. The Bible says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But then the wonderful thing is that Jesus is coming back. And you know, sometimes, let's be honest, it, it, look, look in Isaiah 9. We're going to close this down. But look in Isaiah chapter 9 as we close this. It's going to be a wonderful kingdom. But the one thing I like about this kingdom that's coming, the, 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 the kingdom, uh, it's the, this stone kingdom, if you will, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, notice what he says about it in, in even Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. We use this a lot of times during Christmas. But notice what it says here. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. I like that. No end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with the judgment with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Notice there shall be no end. What a kingdom. And then finally, you know, it appears a lot of times from our, our mindset and our vantage point that Satan's winning the battle. I mean, it does. It just can seem that way if we're not careful. But can I tell you, his days are numbered. Not only are his days numbered because God tells us, he even knows they're numbered. And in the book of Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, the Bible says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Once we are taken out and raptured out, 
and the tribulation begins, Satan's work is going to just manifest itself multiple times. Just It's going to go crazy. We talked about that. The Holy Spirit's out of the way. He that now letteth will let. And man, I mean to tell you, evil will just, just, just go rampant. And all of a sudden, these, this, whether or not the, the, the federated kingdoms are all put together or not, the Roman Empire revived at that point or not, but it will be at least by the time Satan raises his ugly head right in the middle of the tribulation period, and he says, guess what, guys, I am here to rule and reign, and you will all fall down and worship me. Man, at first, he's going to seem like a wonderful guy, and he's going to seem like he has all the answers to all the problems, even COVID. War famine. Got all the answers. Racial injustice. He's got all the answers. Social injustices, economic injustices. The Antichrist will appear to have all the answers, and they will open their arms and embrace him. And then all of a sudden, he's going to receive a wound that it'll appear that he dies or possibly does and resurrects. What better way to prove that you're more than just a mere man? He will then be another person altogether. He will establish himself in the temple and require that men, women, boys, and girls worship him and then require a mark. Interestingly enough, we're going to a cashless society already. Isn't it, it's, it's so easy to recognize how it's going to happen now where 20 years ago we would have went, man, that's going to be hard. How are they going to get that done? Seems pretty easy to me now, doesn't it to you? I'm just saying, this is, this is crazy stuff, and it's happening before our very eyes. This is exciting times to live in. But when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, let me tell you what. Satan's going to be locked away. He's going to start a rule and reign that's never going to end, because even when Satan is loosed again, he's going to be put back in his place real quick and forever. And man, then the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and all of that comes into play. So anyway, we see these kingdoms, yep, the times of the Gentiles, but it's going to end abruptly. It's going to end with Jesus Christ returning. And when Jesus Christ returns, let me tell you, he's going to make right all the wrongs. He'll fix the problem. You know what? It seems a little bit discouraging maybe at times nowadays in the life, in the world we live in, the culture we're in, but it's not. We've got to keep our eyes on the Lord, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We can't get caught up in what's going on in the world to the point where we get discouraged and down. There are too many people in need of the truth and the light of the Word of God. I can't get so down that I can't focus on the hope that I have in Christ. And then if I don't see the hope that I have in Christ, I won't be prepared to share it with others. Boy, be careful. You don't let the things of this life and the things of this world weigh you down. It's tempting, isn't it? I know it is in my life. It's tempting. Be careful, don't let it happen, because redemption draws nigh. He's coming back. When he does, he'll make all the wrongs right. He'll fix everything up just the way it's supposed to be. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that, Lord, we uh, serve you, our God, who is really in control. We understand, Lord, that you permit a lot of things to take place that we don't always understand, but, Lord, you have a a long-term goal. You, you have a, a plan that extends much further than just our particular lifetime or our particular vision. Lord, you, you have uh, an eternal plan. And Lord, the earth and the things of this earth and what's taking place right now is just a piece and a part of it all. And 
Lord, may we just trust you and lean not on our own understanding. Again, we thank you for just the reality of your word, and we thank you for the truth of it. And Lord, where you prophesied things, where your prophets shared with us the future and, and, and foretold things that would come to pass, they did come to pass. When they, when they told us that you would come the first time, you did show up. And when they said that in, in prophecy that you would, would ultimately uh, uh, rise again, you did. And, and Lord, all the things that, Father, were predicted, all the things that took place, Father, that, that were told ahead of time, they were fulfilled completely. And Lord, we ask, dear God, that you'd help us as there are still other promises that have yet to be fulfilled but Lord, we can trust that they will. Now, thank you again for the wonderful truths of your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And although the world may appear to be in the lead, they're not, you are. Help us, Lord, to just trust you and allow you to take us to the finish line safe. We'll thank you in Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.